You're listening to Hour 2 of Episode 747 of Unwelcome Guests. The Fool's Choice of Totalitarianism or Terrorism. We continue with Renine Brunelin's comments on the changing meanings of the word terrorism, especially when used by politicians and the corporate media. The U.S. has accepted what Israel has always said about how to fight terrorism. And this is, in fact, something that the, um, Israel has always said at the UN, the Security Council, when there has been criticism of, about its uses of force. And so do you think that the U.S. has kind of mirrored the, the Israeli discourse because of lobbying by groups like the Jonathan Group, or is it related to the U.S.'s own history and its own wars? for example, in Afghanistan and in Iraq? That's one of the questions that it's, it's difficult as a historian to, to answer because I'm not in, in the head of any of those uh, American leaders. I don't know what they thought and why exactly they, they did it that way. What, what is very clear is that the, the current American stance on how to fight terrorism, meaning that uh, it is legitimate to use force against the terrorists and against the states that harbor or support the terrorists. It is new in the American discourse, but it, it is not new when you go back to how the U.S. talked about those questions at the Security Council in the specific case of Israel being accused by various Arab states or the Soviet Union and its allies of using force against the terrorists. Since '72. Uh, in fact, on September 10th, 1972, following uh, Munich and uh, the airstrikes by Israel against various um, terrorist quote-unquote camps in, in, in neighboring countries, the Security Council deals with the issue of the use of force against terrorism. And the U.S. uses its veto. It's only the second time in, in, in its history that at the time it uses its veto uh, George Bush, senior, of course, is the U.S. ambassador at the time. And he explains that from, from now on, uh, the U.S. position is going to be to veto any resolution that is one-sided. And by one-sided, he explains the U.S. means that is critical of or it condemns uses of force by Israel without at the same time giving the, the, the context, and by context, it means that the root causes of the use of force by Israel is um, the, the question of, of terrorism and the role of states in terrorism. So this is on, on September 10th, uh, 1972. The U.S. is not saying in the 70s that it is legitimate to use force against terrorism. It simply is saying that this is the framework within which the use of force by Israel should be seen. Uh, but at the same time, it always uses its veto whenever a resolution is going to condemn Israel and it condemn its uses of force, and also uses its veto, or rather threatens to use its veto, whenever the other members of the Security Council want to call what Israel did state terrorism. And if you indeed look at the debates throughout the 70s, from the beginning and, and up until now, whenever the issue of the use of force by Israel is brought up, many states are of the position that 
what Israel does and has done for many years and what the Zionist groups did before the creation of the state of Israel is terrorism. And if you look at the drafts of so many, so many resolutions put forward uh, during those years, the word state terrorism is there very, very often. But it never appears in the final resolutions because if it is even put on the table, the U.S. threatens to veto. Uh, sometimes the, the U.S. even threatens to veto if there is mention of civilian casualties caused by Israeli strikes. So this has been the position of the U.S. since 72 at the, at the U.N. Security Council. And the first time that the U.S. actually makes it its own official position in 85, when it sends um, jet airplanes to hijack, quote-unquote, plane that where uh, the Achille Lauro uh, terrorists uh, were flying. And then in 86, when uh, the U.S. Uh, just um, had some missile strikes uh, against um, an airplane strikes against Libya. And then from that moment on, it becomes actually the U.S. position at the Security Council in that one case that it is legitimate to use force against terrorists and, and the terrorist states. But it, it took 14, 15 years, to, and, and then it would more or less disappear for a few years and come back here and there. But it has been the position of, the, of Israel from the very beginning. You can read speeches given by Israeli representatives in 72, and they literally sound like the speeches by uh, Bush, meaning a W. Bush, post-9-11 speeches at the U.N. They sound exactly the same. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the U.S. takes a very different uh, position at the General Assembly as opposed to the Security Council. And it sort of makes sense because at the General Assembly, uh, they don't have veto, veto power. And, and so what they're, go they're, they're going to do, and, and really to summarize very, very quickly, during the Reagan years, what the U.S. is going to be saying, because it's faced with accusations of state terrorism or state-sponsored terrorism all the time at the General Assembly, right? You have non-aligned countries or you have Soviet Union allies who consistently uh, state that the U.S. is involved in state terrorism or state-sponsored terrorism. The state terrorism is during the 70s, for example, because of Vietnam. It is from the get-go because from the 70s on because of U.S. support for South Africa and for all the states. South Africa is, is a terrorist state because of apartheid and the terrorist regime. It's because of U.S. support for Israel and, of course, for all those states. Israel itself is a, is a terrorist state. And so U.S. support for those states means that it's also involved in state terrorism, but also accusations for state-sponsored terrorism. For example, the support for the Contras in the 80s is for majority of uh, member states at the General Assembly, a clear case of state-sponsored terrorism by the U.S. or uh, the role of the CIA in Nicaragua, mining the harbors in 84, for example, is for them clearly an act of state-sponsored terrorism or the, the roles of the anti-Castro Cubans in Florida and their role is in acts of terrorism is for them a, a clear case of the U.S. sponsoring terrorism or at least harboring terrorists and not doing anything against them. So in that context, a, an extremely adversarial context, the U.S. during the 80s, during the Reagan years, 
uh, it's not going to de- deny all those acts. What it's going to say is that if a if a state is involved in an act of terrorism in any way, shape, or form, uh, meaning uh, uh, if a state is involved directly or indirectly in an act of terrorism, then it's not an act of terrorism, right? So they're going to say in 81, in 83, 85, 87, 89, and 91, every other year, they're going to say that those accusations make no sense in the context of debates about international terrorism because they refer to acts in which a state, the U.S., the United States, is involved. And if that's the case, it's already covered by international law, by the U.N. Charter, etc. And therefore, uh, and they use those terms, it is neither useful nor necessary to use the term international terrorism to condemn those acts because they're already covered by international law. Right. So that's what they, they keep repeating throughout the 80s. And of course, in a way, this this legal argument, because this takes place uh, uh, in the sixth committee, the legal committee of the General Assembly, where the debates on international terrorism have happened since 72 following Munich. The argument makes sense uh, from a legal standpoint because it has the merit of not separating state-sponsored terrorism and state terrorism, right? So if, if a state is involved, either you decide that it's terrorism, and so you accept both concepts, or you decide that it's not, and so you reject both. But you don't split it in two, because legally it makes no sense, because the issue is state responsibility. It really makes no sense to say that state-sponsored terrorism exists, for example, but state terrorism, as in the direct use of force by a state, for example, by its, I don't know, intelligence services agents, it doesn't make sense to say that this does not exist. And uh, there's a very specific case that's put forward by the U.S. in in 83. You had had an assassination attempt in Rangoon against the South Korean prime minister. And for the first two or three three weeks, everyone thought that it was a non-state act, right? By, by a group of North Koreans. Uh, and then there's an investigation, and everyone realizes that actually uh, the perpetrators were members of the North Korean army, two officers from, from the North Korean army. And so during the, the, the subsequent debates on international terrorism at the UN, the U.S. is going to be the only country to state that the committee should not be talking about Rangoon because Rangoon is not an act of international terrorism. And, and specifically, Rosenstock, who is the, uh, the representative of the U.S. at the time, says very clearly that for a few weeks, we thought that it was an act of terrorism, the kind that the committee should be talking about and acting against. But actually, it turns out that it's state agents. And because it's state agents, it's not an act of terrorism because it's already covered by international law. Right. And so th- this argument makes sense. And it has the obvious benefit for the U.S. and the General Assembly that by definition, the U.S. cannot be involved in terrorism because if a state is involved, it's not terrorism. The problem is that at the same time, Ronald Reagan, when he talks to the American people, is every other day talking about state sponsored terrorism and in fact mentions Rangoon and mentions the attack against uh, the Marines and mentions uh, the Soviet Union downing an airplane, 
all acts in which states are involved and uses that to create this international terrorist threat. And of course, you cannot have it both ways. But what's fascinating about the American discourse or discourses, plural, is that the U.S. has been able to have it both ways or three ways or four ways. It has been able to say something to the American public and use a completely different definition at the General Assembly and a completely different definition at the, the Security Council. And no one knows because the media, and this is an important, important part of that whole thing, the media has never covered those debates at the UN. And experts on terrorism have actually not looked at the U.S. position during these debates either. And this applies to U.S. Congress also, where the, the question of the definition has been talked about over and over and over again. And it's obvious when you look at these debates that there's no agreement within Washington itself about what terrorism is. And yet those debates are not covered uh, and so, and, and in the media, the, the term is used as if everyone read about what terrorism is, which of course is absolutely not the case. And now, more recently, the, the State Department issued a report uh, designating some acts of Israeli settler violence as terrorism. How significant is that report? Yeah, the report came out uh, at some point in, uh, in August. And it was reported as significant and as the first time that the State Department had used the term terrorism to talk about not Palestinians only, but actually Israeli settlers. So it is true that this is what the State Department did, but it was not the first time. I looked it up and it's very easy to, to, to check uh, because everything is, is online and you can go back all the way to 85 and find mention of Israeli extremists, uh, for example, killing, um, uh, attacking two, uh, two mayors in, in the West Bank. And this is called an act of terrorism by the State Department. So it, it's not really new, but probably more importantly, it shouldn't surprise us either that, that the State Department does use the term terrorism when it talks about uh, uh, extremist settlers, nor that this is also how the Israeli government speaks about those acts. Because there's nothing about this such a position that is actually threatening to the discourse on terrorism. And in fact, if you look in there, you have uh, at least one attack that is of Israeli settlers attacking uh, Israeli IDF soldiers, right? And of course, the, the two big issues about the definition of, of terrorism are does state terrorism exist or is it only groups that can be called ter uh, terrorists? Uh, and of course, this is simply confirming the fact that settlers, meaning non-state actors, can be terrorists. So it's not in that sense threatening to the, the, the discourse on terrorism. And the other issue is whether all uses of force by non-state actors are terrorism or only specific instances, only those against innocent civilians or non-combatants. And in this case, clearly, the State Department and the uh, Israeli government is using the term terrorism to talk about Israeli settlers attacking military IDF soldiers. This has been also like a, a very central argument at the General Assembly, because for one side in the debate, the issue has always been 
that to them, the West, spoken of broadly, the West is using the term terrorism to refer to all uses of force, of force by what they call national liberation movements, right? For example, South Africa is calling whatever the ANC does violently, sabotage, economic sabotage, terrorism. And they have their own laws about terrorism, and terrorism is defined extremely broadly in those laws. And this is what Israel is doing also. And in fact, for the first time in 87, Syria uh, put forward a proposal uh, when the resolutions on international terrorism were proposed, a proposal that said that um, there should be an international conference to define terrorism and and differentiate between terrorism and legitimate uh, uses of force for national liberation, right? The positions of all unaligned and and Soviet Union allies country, meaning the huge majority of member states, were in favor of having such a conference because they want a definition of terrorism because they feel that this term is not has not been defined and is always used against them. And they, and they feel like they need the protection that a definition that's agreed upon by everybody would give them. So they're in favor of it, which is not to say, of course, that they, they all agree on what terrorism would be. But what is striking is that Syria, actually, in 83 and 85 and 87, very explicitly said what we're interested in is that there is a clear difference between attacking civilians and, the, for example, they, they talk about the Achille and the Palestinians and said this is against civilians, this is terrorism, there is no doubt. But, and they give examples of forces in the, the, the Golan Heights and, and their own territories that are occupied at the time and said suicide attacks against uh, occupying military forces are not acts of terrorism, right? So that's their position, and Syria's position is very clear, uh, again, it's not the case for all Arab states. Some of them say that give the impression that if it's for a good cause, uh, it's not terrorism, right? But Syria is very clear. And on the other side, Israel and the U.S. opposed to the idea of an international conference on terrorism in 87, since 72, in fact, in 87 and since then, just like, like the rest of the Western world has been opposed the argument being that there will not be an agreement because it's too difficult, so we should not have a conference. The U.S. and Israel very clearly, uh, when they react to what Syria said, clearly say that for them this is an act of terrorism, right? That suicide attack, obviously it's extremely violent, it's a suicide attack, but the target is military. And for them it, it is, and it should be considered an act of terrorism. That was the position of the U.S. In, in those years. And it's, in fact, very difficult to figure out exactly if you, lo- if you look at debates at the General Assembly, what is the actual official position of the U.S. on the question of the legitimacy of the use of force by non-state actors? It's, they basically do not talk about it openly but their votes against various uh, self-determination resolutions in, in other committees give the sense that apparently they continue to reject uh, the idea that it's, it is legitimate to use force, any kind of force, if you're a non-state actor. And of course, it's ironic because this is the 80s and this is the Reagan doctrine years. And of course, the Reagan doctrine is about freedom fighters and how 
uh, to quote Reagan from his State of the Union address in early 85, uh, support for freedom fighters is self-defense. So again, you have a clear contrast between what the U.S. say at the U.N. about the use of force, where it's illegitimate and most of it, if not all of it, is terrorism. And at the same time, you have Reagan saying that support for freedom fighters not only is fine, but it's actually self-defense. And of course, the, the two are not compatible, and the only way that they are is, and that no one knows, is because the media, once again, does not cover those issues. You've touched upon this briefly before, but I just wanted to get your take on where the U.S. Congress stands in all of this. So on, on the issue broadly of terrorism, uh, Congress sort of starts talking about it and have hearings about international terrorism, per se, in and of itself, for the first time in, in 74. And what's interesting is that at the time, the, um, the experts that are called to talk about terrorism have no problem talking about state terrorism. So non-state terrorism, of course, but also state, state terrorism. And they actually have no problem talking about certain uses of force by the U.S. in Vietnam as being acts of state terrorism, uses of force by Israel, as not all of them, but some of them, as being acts of state terrorism. So that's 74. And those experts are not radical leftists. You have Ryan Jenkins, who works for the RAND Corporation at the time and is a, a very well-known terrorism expert. You have uh, Ernst Lefebvre, who, uh, who was very close to being um, an official under Reagan and everything. So those are not radicals. Throughout the 70s, the issue of terrorism comes up uh, in the context of Latin America and Central America, disappearances, death squads, and all that. This is considered terrorism. And then, more importantly to, to the subject uh, at hand right now, and from 70, 77 to 79, you have discussions about uh, the idea of coming up with a list of state sponsors of terrorism. This is an idea uh, that comes from Senators uh, Javits and Ribikov, a Democrat and a Republican, their idea is to come up with a list of terrorist states, and very, very clearly the focus would be on the states who give aid and support to the PLO. You have very long debates, and of course there is um, a tug of war, a struggle between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and at the time the context, of course, is Carter trying to negotiate the Camp David Accords, and he realizes that such a list would tie his hands because suddenly he would not be allowed to talk with those states because they would be on the list, Egypt and other states that he's talking to at the time. So there's a tug of war and there's the issue of the definition and there is no agreement amongst Democrats or Republicans exactly about how you could define terrorism in such a way that, for example, Saudi Arabia would not be on the list because, of course, at the time, Saudi Arabia is giving support to the PLO and other terrorist groups. But no one in Congress or in the executive branch would want to have Saudi Arabia on the list and then have to take sanctions or not be allowed to give support to Saudi Arabia, so sell Saudi Arabia weapons or whatever. So it fails. The, the Congress is not able at the time to come up with a list, but and yet we have a list, and it's because uh, Fenwick was um, a represent representative from New Jersey, actually picked up the idea of the list and put it on the rider to a larger bill. 
and it was accepted without any debates. And so a few months later, the State Department, uh, because uh, uh, according to that Fenwick Amendment, it was up to the State Department to designate the, um, the sponsors of terrorists. Following that, we have the list, and we have four or five states who are on the list, and then they'll be on and off. Um, so this is uh, how the, the, the Congress started dealing with the issue. Uh, and then there's the, they, they dealt also with the, the issue of material support for terrorism, which is a, something that um, is very important these days and that the Supreme Court just ruled on in a few important cases recently. There are debates about this in 84, for the first time, long debates. And once again, the, there's absolute inability on the part of Congress to legislate on material support for terrorism because there's complete disagreement on who the terrorists are. Because for the Democrats, the DNC, for example, are not terrorists, whereas they are terrorists for the Republicans. The FMLN might be terrorists, but not all Democrats would agree. More importantly for them, the death squads in El Salvador would be, and the Republicans don't agree. And it goes on and on. Of course, you have the contrast. The Democrats think that they're terrorists, and of course, for the Republicans, they're freedom fighters. And so you have no agreement on the definition of, of terrorism, and you have fascinating discussions between Democrats who want to know exactly how the executive branch would make those decisions. And the answer that they get all the time is that it would not be acceptable for the representative of the executive branch to guess what its department or what the executive branch would decide in the future. So they decide not to respond. And so there is basically no agreement on the material support of terrorism because there is no agreement on the definition. And also, of course, because of civil liberties issues and freedom of speech issues about definition of what giving services to terrorists mean, what, what kind of expertise, what does it mean, everything. All those debates, of course, are still at the heart of the recent decision by the, the Supreme Court on the case uh, Holder versus uh, Humanitarian Law Project that was decided in, uh, in 2010, two years ago. And it is, of course, because there, there is now material support for terrorism statute. It was passed in 1996 and under Clinton. And one major reason why it was passed, there's political obvious reasons and context. It's just one year after the, the Oklahoma City bombing and people want to act in Congress against terrorism. But the other major context is that the Cold War is over. And so there are no very clear conflicts where Democrats and Republicans could be in, in, disagree, in disagreement about who the terrorists are. And also the, the events in Ireland are over. That's also a big issue when we think today in terms of charities and mostly Muslim charities, right? So that would be the other decision that the Supreme Court just reached to actually not grant the appeal of the Holy Land Foundation a few days ago, a few weeks ago. At the time, in the, in the 90s, uh, many, many Irish Americans are giving money to Irish charities. And everyone knows that these are fronts and that they go to the IRA, meaning to terrorists. And you have, in fact, uh, Margaret Thatcher is always complaining at the time that there is no extradition agreement between the U.S. and, and, uh, and, and Great Britain and that the U.S. is helping the terrorists over there and everything. All of this is pretty much gone in 96 and all the terrorists quote unquote that are left 
are in the Middle East. This is the conflict about the conflicts plural about which there is agreement between Democrats and Republicans. So in that sense, there's a big hurdle that that's out of the way, and this to me explains to a great extent how the material support of terrorism law got passed. And of course, it applies only to designated foreign terrorist organizations, not to all terrorists, right? And recently, there was the big issue of the MEK. They have been just delisted, and it had become problematic because it had been on the list of terrorist groups for many, many years. And uh, George Bush himself, in 2003, when making the case for the war in Iraq, had mentioned the fact that Saddam Hussein was, was hosting the MEK, And so that was part of the fact that he was part of the terrorist threat and linked to al-Qaeda, broadly speaking. Recently, Democrats and Republicans, officials from both parties, had been talking to the MEK and talking for the MEK and calling for the listing of uh, this organization. And the State Department recently actually took the MEK out of the list. And of course, if you look at... and, And those officials got money from the AEK to speak in their favor and to get them delisted. And if you look at the Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project decision, there is material support if there is coordination or control between the, the people uh, who are giving the support and the group. And in, in that case, there was control. There was even money being exchanged. And so the, the way that problem gets solved is by delisting the MEK. And of course, the MEK is opposed to Iran and might, I don't know, might have been involved in the assassination of various nuclear scientists in Iran. We don't know very very well. Might probably have done that with Israeli help and support. We don't know exactly. So they get that the the solution is obvious. They they get delisted. But but again, if we imagine for a second that I don't... I hope, obviously, that this is not going to happen. But if troubles in in uh, in Ireland started again, and and suddenly the U.S. would be left with laws that many 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 American citizens would be troubled with because of what it does to the civil liberties and free speech, Irish Americans would be irate, would be really angry that they cannot give any money to any charity because somehow, as the Supreme Court decided, money is fungible, meaning that even if you give it to the humanitarian group, it is fungible, meaning that it frees space for you to fund your terrorism. Uh, If that uh, standard was applied to groups that we want to help, the ANC in the 80s, the IRA for Irish Americans, the Mujahideen in the 80s, right? The Contras in the 80s, Obviously, there would be an uproar and people would realize that this is impossible. The, the problem right now is that everyone apparently agrees on who the terrorists are and they're all located in, in the Middle East. So the issue of terrorism and the definition of terrorism doesn't strike anyone as being a problem. And that, I thought, was an excellent summary of how this word terrorism and the power to delist organizations how that once it's been institutionalized, it becomes a bargaining chip. It's a power card that the State Department can play. How difficult it is for this set of institutions to 
play double, treble, quadruple game, how it can claim moral high ground, and yet it can reject moral equivalency. So it says we are different from the terrorists, we have the legal monopoly on violence, and no, nothing we do is terrorism because we are a legal government. We are the good guys. I think thinking of oneself as a good guy, in some sense it's, it's psychologically inevitable, but thinking of other people as therefore bad guys, well, we're back to this idea. Are other people there intrinsically in opposition to oneself, or is the possibility that we're working together? Now, for a personal rather than an organizational look at the power of enemy images to corrupt and confuse objective thoughts about reality, I'd like you to compare the tales told about two young men. It's not quite a fair comparison. The second one, John Perkins, is telling his own story. But we begin with Douglas Valentine, from whom we heard last week, speaking on the corruption of the CIA, how if you reject moral equivalency and say we're the good guys, everything we do is good because we're fighting the bad guys, the problems that that entails. I thought we were going to have time for a lot of this, but in fact we've only got time for about 15 minutes because I want to contrast Bruce Lawler's development with that of John Perkins. So here goes, this is taken from episode 359 of Guns and Butter, as usual. I shall link to the original from this show's webpage. Many thanks to Bonnie Faulkner for providing this clip. In your new book, The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World, you've written that the collusion between crime and law enforcement is the glue that holds the system together. You say that this is the case for small towns all the way up to the federal government. How does this system of collusion between crime and law enforcement operate? And why is this the case? You asked the question, is having people who are in actuality war criminals in positions of legislative and executive authority in America an expression of a free society? What are some examples of war criminals in positions of authority in America? For example, Major General Bruce Lawler. You wrote a chapter on him. Who is he? Well, uh, when I was doing my research in my book, The Phoenix Program, I met a bunch of CIA officers, and they told me what they did. And um, uh, Bruce Lawler was one of them, and he was a guy that, he was going to college in Washington, D.C., and he got recruited into the CIA. This was during the Vietnam War. And he was sent for training. He learned how to be uh, both an agent handler, which is a specific uh, job description in the CIA. There's agent handlers. But he also learned how to be a paramilitary officer, which are people that shoot guns and blow things up and organize paramilitary units. Uh, in foreign countries. And then around 1970, he was sent over, 71, he was sent over to Vietnam to, uh, to work for um, more senior CIA officers doing these things. One of his jobs as a liaison officer was working with what was called the special branch of the South Vietnamese police. 
they are sort of comparable to our FBI, the special branch of the police. They, they were involved in uh, trying to uh, penetrate the insurgency at the highest levels. The Viet Cong insurgency had a political apparatus. You could think of them as the Democrats and the Americans and their um, uh, allies as the Republicans and, and the, the CIA and its allies and the special police and the, the uh, South Vietnamese army and its politicians were like Republicans and they could not tolerate anybody who was a communist. Uh, they were after trying to find all the Democrats, all the communists in in um, South Vietnam, and they would penetrate that organization through informants and also um, secret agents who would become part of it. They weren't really all that interested necessarily in arresting these people, but they were interested in being able to manipulate them, to be able to say, well, we know where your family lives. If you're not good will go bump off your family. So uh, because in, in Vietnam, for example, all of the communists knew who the, who the special policemen were and where their families were. So you couldn't go around bumping off each other's families or you'd have like, a you know, like with the mafia, there was, um, you know, you don't kill another man's wife and kids, you know, you just keep it with yourself. So that was sort of like a rule. Anyway, Lawler found himself uh, as a very young man, maybe 24, 25 years old, in a very important position. He was a liaison to a special police officer, and that special police officer ran an interrogation center where uh, people who were suspected of having ties to the, to the communists were brought for interrogation. And um, uh, his job was to be there and to watch what would happen and report on it back to his his bosses. And um, when I was talking with Lawler, he was very upset about the things he saw and and uh, about um, how his bosses behaved. We were now it's now into 1972-73. There's been a ceasefire signed, and um, uh, supposedly the war has stopped, and yet. Yet these kind of very, um, well, devious and deadly uh, kind of assassinations and interrogations and torture were still going on, and they weren't supposed to be going on anymore. And Lawler was very upset. One day he walked into this interrogation center, and there was a woman laid out on a, on a, a table, and she'd been murdered and raped. And he saw that. You know, the, the, the special policeman had um, uh, murdered this woman and, and he was just stunned. He didn't know what to do. I mean, it's a crime. Obviously, it's a crime. And um, uh, he reported it and he was told, well, you know, forget about it. The, we can't control what the, the South Vietnamese do. Don't make an issue of it. Other things like that were happening uh, to him. And he was witnessing his boss, and he, you know, he explained all this to me. Um, uh, his boss was a very senior CIA officer, and he was in charge of uh, Da Nang City, which is up in I Corp. And Bruce, through his uh, Lawler, through his uh, agent net, knew that this guy's girlfriend was a Viet Cong agent, 
And he went to his senior CIA boss and he said, look, at I know your girlfriend's um, uh, you know, working for the enemy. And he told me, but the, this, they, they knew the war was winding down and they just wanted to live a good life. The, this, you know, CIA, old time CIA guy it was his last tour. He was going to retire. Um, it wasn't uncommon in, in, in Vietnam for a senior, uh, the Vietnamese special police to actually bring a young 14, 15 year old girl to a CIA officer every night. Different one. Um, it's different culture. And um, these kinds of things and inducements were available. And, and when you're a CIA officer and you're, um, uh, everything you do is secret, you know, you don't have to put that into a report. And because you're, because you're protected and, and, and nobody can, can ever bring you before court in the United States, you can do anything illegal you want and you can get away with it. And, and all it takes is an old boy network of each of these guys knowing that this is how it works and that, you know, all they have to do is cover for each other and they can get away with it. And they're getting away with it all over the world every day in a million ways. And that's how that old boy system works. But Bruce Lawler was only 24 years old, 25 years old. And he hadn't yet got assimilated into this old boy culture. And he actually went to the security officer in Saigon and reported about the rape and the murder of this woman and about his senior boss being involved in uh, having a girlfriend who was you know, part of the enemy infrastructure. And within a week, Bruce Lawler was sent home. So uh, the security forces within the CIA, within the FBI, they don't exist to enforce rules or laws. They exist to enforce the old boy network and to allow these guys to get away with this. I mean, and if you, the worst thing that you can do you know, ask somebody like Snowden or John Kiriakou. Kiriakou ended up spending a couple of years in prison because he, he all he did was mention another CIA officer's name. The, the one thing you can't do in the CIA is, you know, uh, rat out all the corruption that's going on. It's just like being in the NYPD. You can, you can rip off of people left and right all day long. The one thing you can't do is, is break the code of silence. And that's the same thing that's going on in the CIA. And that's why I said at the beginning of this, this conversation that if you're successful because you lie, steal, and cheat, and murder, well, those become the things that you're going to use in the bureaucracy. And that's exactly what happens. But you can't know about it because these are secret organizations. And they're, you know, supposedly they're secret because there's, they're doing all this good work overthrowing Russia or something, you know. Um, but it's really... It's really just to, to uh, preserve all the prerogatives and the freedoms that they have in the security services themselves or in the police force themselves. And they rationalize it by saying, well, we have to live these lives because we're on the front lines and we get very small paychecks and we have to supplement our incomes somehow. You know, a, a cop says, well, I can't sell my, send my kids to college on the paycheck I get. So if I want to send my kids to college, well, then I got to let um, the Jamaicans beat up the Colombians and take over the, the drug trade in my neighborhood, you know, and then because the drug trade is going to go on anyway. So I got to let somebody do it. So, you know, if somebody's going to give me some money then I can send my kids to college. So all these things go into it anyway. Um, at the same time, 
in order to become part of this old boy network, whether it's in the NYPD or the FBI or the CIA, as happened to Lawler, you have to give up a part of yourself. And, and Lawler went through all this training and he uh, really believed in fighting communism. And even though he got sent back home after reporting on all the corruption he saw, and even though they actually kicked him out of the CIA, there was a part of him that always longed to get back in. And uh, a couple of years later, he actually went back down to Washington, D.C. Lawler's from uh, uh, Vermont. And he went to see William Colby, who was also brought up in Vermont. And Colby tried to get him back into the CIA, and it, it didn't really work. So, so he went back into the, um, he, he'd been a reserve officer in the military. But he, he wanted to be part of this. So Colby helped him getting back into the military. And, and all of a sudden, through the 1990s, he started rising very quickly through the military. And by, by 1999, he was actually in general heading uh, a, a special joint coordination force within NATO or something. I can't remember exactly, but he, was, he had given up his law practice and become a full-time military officer. He was a general. And when the um, Department of Homeland Security was created in, in 2001, Bruce Lawler became its chief of staff. And all of a sudden you have a guy who's still trying to prove, whose personal motivation is to prove that he really is one of the old boys, that he's sorry that he ratted out all his bosses back there in Vietnam. Please give me a chance and I'll show you guys that I'm really one of you. Now he gets appointed chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security when it's created and all sorts of people were complaining about because they didn't understand what he was doing and they they couldn't understand why he was doing certain things. And I wrote him a letter. It was actually an open letter, which was published in Counterpunch about a week after he got appointed to this position. And I said, hey, Bruce, are you still working for the CIA? I mean, are you a CIA plant? in the Department of Homeland Security? Are you actually working for them? And are you, you know, helping to organize this new organization in a way that makes it possible for the CIA to infiltrate them and to place people that it wants in positions of power there? And of course, you know, that was, again, I'm not a, I didn't come up through the Columbia School of Journalism, you know, I mean, I, I was asked it. And of course he never responded, but you don't know. A guy like him could always be, even if he's not actually a CIA officer, so ideologically in sync with them and, and, and has the contacts, I mean, that, that he could actually be a CIA asset at the highest level of the Department of Homeland Security. And if you think it doesn't happen, think again, because it does happen. And there was an awful lot of people from the Phoenix program and from the CIA who moved out of the CIA, either into positions of um, uh, to hold public office or into law enforcement or the DEA or the FBI or some other organization who maintain their CIA contacts 
come up through another channel and find themselves in the Department of Homeland Security. And, 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 and certainly the ideology, as they are, it infects the whole thing of the only way we can get these bad guys is to be worse than them and to be more devious. And that's how crime and law enforcement become uh, indistinguishable. And, and, and the, the tactics that are used in crime and law enforcement are exactly the same, except that one group wears the mantle of, of uh, legitimacy. You know, and the other, and the other, you know, they're the the immigrants or the the outcasts who are just trying to get into the establishment, and they don't have lawyers writing tax laws, you know, to get them off of uh, like a like a guy like Trump, you know, so he doesn't have to pay a million dollars, a billion dollars in taxes that he owes, which of course is a much bigger crime than anything that the minions are doing, you know, that the nobodies are doing that are getting arrested and put in jail. You know, I mean, the, the massive crime um, is conducted systematically, like like I quote that fellow at the beginning of my book saying, the violence of guns is for the amateur. The violence of, of aircraft carrier fleets, of nuclear weapons, of the Department of Justice that's essentially racist, you know, that kind of violence, that kind of terror, that's the province of our rulers. And it's all legal because they make it legal for them to do it. And, and yet it's no, it's no less criminal to be not paying a billion dollars in, in taxes. Just as you're a billionaire, that's, that's what you're allowed to do. Anyway, so I could go on and on with there's all sorts of, of, of in, in this book, the CIA organized crime present a couple of cases of people who work for the CIA or special forces and then carry this, this whole philosophy with them into their public life. And thanks to Douglas Valentine for broadening the scope there. I haven't yet looked at the arms industry. I think that's got to be a serious omission by any stretch of the imagination if we look at the business of generating enemy images. Now, we're going to conclude with five minutes. This is a reading from John Perkins' hugely successful Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I find it, perhaps it's because I live in an LDC, a lesser developed country that's formerly underdeveloped, or just a poor country, very impressed by his ability to tie together several different topics and coherently explain that to a Western audience. He's describing a point in his life in the 1970s, early 1970s, when already he's hearing predictions of a coming global war between the Christian and the Muslim states. So that is a perspective we haven't yet heard on this war on terrorism and ties that together with the colonial exploitation as well as giving us uh, something of an inside perspective how it feels to be involved in a large, a massive enterprise, the foreign aid business, and yet at the same time be a human being and having to deal with a moral conscience that won't be confined to the simplistic images of improving people's lives by allowing them to generate more exports. I began to wonder when foreign aid is genuine and when it is only greedy and self-serving. Indeed, I began to question whether such aid is ever altruistic, and if not, whether that could be changed. 
I was certain that countries like my own should take decisive action to help the sick and starving of the world. But I was equally certain that this was seldom, if ever, the prime motivation for our intervention. I kept coming back to one main question. If the objective of foreign aid is imperialism, is that so wrong? I often found myself envying people like Charlie, who believed so strongly in our system that they wanted to force it on the rest of the world. I doubted whether limited resources would allow the whole world to live the opulent life of the United States, when even the United States had millions of citizens living in poverty. In addition, it wasn't entirely clear to me that people in other nations actually want to live like us. Our own statistics about violence, depression, drug abuse, divorce, and crime indicated that although ours was one of the wealthiest societies in history, it may also be one of the least happy societies. Why would we want others to emulate us? Perhaps Claudine had warned me of all this. I was no longer sure what it was she had been trying to tell me. In any case, intellectual arguments aside, it had now become painfully clear that my days of innocence were gone. I wrote in my journal, Is anyone in the U.S. innocent? Although those at the very pinnacle of the economic pyramid gain the most, millions of us depend, either directly or indirectly, on the exploitation of the LDCs for our livelihoods. The resources and cheap labor that feed nearly all our businesses come from places like Indonesia, and very little ever makes its way back. The loans of foreign aid ensure that today's children and their grandchildren will be held hostage. They will have to allow our corporations to ravage their natural resources, and will have to forego education, health, and other social services merely to pay us back. The fact that our own companies already received most of this money to build the power plants, airports, and industrial parks does not factor into this formula. Does the excuse that most Americans are unaware of this constitute innocence? Uninformed and intentionally misinformed, yes, but innocent? Of course, I had to face the fact that I was now numbered among those who actively misinform. The concept of a worldwide holy war was a disturbing one, but the longer I contemplated it, the more convinced I became of its possibility. It seemed to me, however, that if this jihad were to occur, it would be less about Muslims versus Christians than it would be about LDCs versus DCs, perhaps with Muslims at the forefront. We in the DCs were the users of resources, those in the LDCs were the suppliers. It was the colonial mercantile system all over again, set up to make it easy for those with power and limited natural resources to exploit those with resources but no power. I did not have a copy of Toynbee with me, but I knew enough history to understand that suppliers who are exploited long enough will rebel. I only had to return to the American Revolution and Tom Paine for a model. I recalled that Britain justified its taxes by claiming that England was providing aid to the colonies in the form of military protection against the French and the Indians. The colonists had a very different interpretation. What Paine offered to his countrymen in the brilliant common sense 
was the soul that my young Indonesian friends had referred to, an idea of faith in the justice of a higher power and a religion of freedom and equality that was diametrically opposed to the British monarchy and its elitist class systems. What Muslims offered was similar, faith in a higher power and a belief that developed countries have no right to subjugate and exploit the rest of the world. Like colonial Minutemen, Muslims were threatening to fight for their rights. And, like the British in the 1770s, we classified such actions as terrorism. History appeared to be repeating itself. I wondered what sort of a world we might have if the United States and its allies diverted all the monies expended in colonial wars, like the one in Vietnam, to eradicating world hunger, or to making education and basic health care available to all people including our own. I wondered how future generations would be affected if we committed to alleviating the sources of misery and to protecting watersheds, forests, and other natural areas that ensure clean water, air, and the things that feed our spirits as well as our bodies. I could not believe that our founding fathers had envisioned the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to exist only for Americans. So why were we now implementing strategies that promoted the imperialist values they had fought against? And I take it my way, my shiny black And yes, I confess, I also chose that because I wanted to end the show on a positive note. I feel like my life has improved a lot since I've concentrated on trying to cut down on enemy images slightly like I felt my life improved when I gave up watching television I guess it's kind of a question of mental hygiene I hope the show has helped you to see that the word terrorism is one that if we must use it I only use this word on wikispooks within double quotes now don't talk about terrorists of my own volition Whatever people do, they are still people. If we're committing crimes, these people could be criminals. Do we really need to have a separate fear-based category where different rules apply? This and all previous episodes of the show are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Every episode has its own page describing the contributors, and there's a couple of hundred contributor pages listing all the episodes to which they've made a contribution. I'm always glad to hear what you think of the show, and a special thanks to John Hettinger for getting in touch after listening for many years. I was encouraged to hear his appreciation of the show.